Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 225 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Scott Wilson, a landscape, wildlife, cityscape, seascape, and portrait photographer who recently has overcome a stage four colon cancer diagnosis. Scott leveraged his love for photography to overcome his diagnosis and has leveraged his recovery as a catalyst to take his artwork to new levels. On today's show, you will be inspired by Scott's story and his attitude on photography. Scott and I discuss a variety of topics this week, including his varied interests in the different genres mentioned before, Scott's battle with colon cancer, how to use photography to advocate for various causes that you're passionate about, photographing wild mustangs, and opening a gallery during COVID, (laughs) and a lot more. Over on Patreon this week, Scott and I discuss our shared passion for skiscapes and our shared passion for having a sense of camaraderie when photographing with friends. Well, before we get started, I wanted to let listeners know about an exclusive offer made available only to you. We have partnered with Nature Photographers Network, the internet's premier landscape and nature photographers website, and it's full of articles, engaging forums, critique forums, discount codes, all kinds of stuff for members. NPN is now offering podcast listeners a free 30-day trial to the platform, plus 20% off their first year of membership. Just head over to naturephotographers.network forward slash f-stop or find the link in the show notes to get started with your free trial. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Scott Wilson, it's so awesome to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much. Delighted to meet you, Matt, after seeing you so, so widely on social media and finally put a face to the name. Yeah, it's always it's always a pleasure for me to uh, to speak with other people living here in the in the great state of Colorado. And um, I always have a hard time remembering who first turned me on to you. I think it was a listener. But um, as soon as I checked out your work, I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I've, of course, I heard some of your backstory and I was even further intrigued, so I'm really excited for this particular episode. Thanks very much. I think it was Wayne Suggs that might have put. put I think it was. Yeah. So he, he's. Uh, we've never met, but we're uh, good good friends on social media as well. It's it's clearly a great way to uh, to meet people. So I'm glad he um, put me your way. So. Yeah, I should have assumed it was Wayne. He he turns me on to all the great the great talent. <laughs> he's well, like he, my, he, my he talent. He, he's, he's like my talent recruiter. He's you know he's like he's like scouting for me. <laughs> well, he's a great talent himself. So he's he's very generous with his compliments. Oh yeah, he really is. He's he's a great guy, and he's actually been on the podcast twice. So uh-huh. yeah, awesome man. Well, for people that are unfortunate to not have heard of you before or seen your work before, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this world of photography yeah sure so my name's scott wilson Uh, as you can tell i i live in colorado but i'm not from here so uh, born and bred in scotland we moved to colorado in 2015 and as a landscape photographer it was absolutely kind of dream move you know you're just moving to this mecca uh, for for landscape photography Uh, i hadn't really dabbled in wildlife photography much at all at that point it was it was really all about landscape 
settled very quickly, got into the scene here, joined uh, a gallery. Um, and then, uh, sorry, I thought you were stopping me there. No, okay. Okay. Um, got into the gallery scene and, and really started to explore other genre. I think we're going to get into some of the, the, the reasons why I went wildlife uh, in a moment. But if I take you back first, gosh, it's probably well over 20 years now when I started. Um, I was living in Glasgow, Scotland's biggest city. My wife moved into my one-bedroom bachelor uh, pad and said, no, this isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> We're moving to the country. And, and I actually fell in love with the country. And I remember looking out the back window one evening, washing the dishes and seeing this uh, deer looking back at me. And I know to a Coloradan, that's nothing. Uh, but I was quite impressed. I said, like, where's my camera? And of course, she's like, don't be stupid. You don't have a camera. Um, but that was the moment I realized I wanted to start to capture some of the kind of nature and beauty around me. Um, and that sparked an interest, which, as I say, has gone on for two decades. Um, I joined a camera club uh, and actually got very quickly in appreciating multiple genre and sort of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And mm -hmm. uh, clubs, I find, are a great environment for making friends but learning. And, you know, and uh, photography is, I think, a very generous art or they're very generous artists uh, and, and it was great to go in as a, a real uh, novice and, and you know work alongside some guys that had been shooting for years and were just happy to share their wisdom uh, so I, I mean I try and emulate that now and, and wherever I can I, I will try and mentor people or you know bring, bring them along as well so I think it's one of the nice things about photography is that willingness to share yeah and I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of paying it paying it forward to, you know, I think that's the way we keep the cycle going, right, is helping out people when we can. Uh, have you found it to be difficult to, to keep that going? Because sometimes I, I don't know about you, but, you know, sometimes I'll get two, three, four requests in a day of people wanting to know something or asking me a question about something. And it's like, ah, oh, man, I, I really want to help you, but I literally don't have the time. Yeah, managing time is difficult, Matt. I, I totally get that. And I think so allocating time and space to particular projects. So, I mean, I know we'll talk about the gallery shortly. Um, but So there's four of us that are running the gallery, and we're creating space for a fifth artist so that now and again we'll, we'll rotate and bring someone in. So hmm. I guess that becomes a way of doing that paying forward, but in a way that, that's time allocated and and so, so you and then you can say actually i've got this thing going over here why don't you apply for that and it does it does allow you to manage your time a little bit better but um and and on the, the advocacy front as well which i know we'll talk more about i mean I, I get so many questions every week from people who are going through health challenges mm. um and and i've got to be honest i do always try and find time even even if it means you don't sleep you just you've got to find time to help people that are going through things like that so yeah i think that certainly is a much more worthy cause than someone asking you about your camera settings <laughs> um for sure yeah. Uh, yeah so so going back to you know being in scotland and you know getting really excited about photography what uh what brought you to colorado so I worked, um, as we were sort of talking pre-show, I worked in the beer business for 20 years. Uh, Colorado is clearly a mecca for beer in the United States. So I moved over in 2015 to take on a, a global corporate affairs role for a, a, a major brewer at the time. But um, alongside that, I just had 
two eyes completely on the landscape opportunity. And it was just such a fantastic place to sort of land from, from a work point of view and then from a, a sort of work. I, 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 I hesitate to call photography a hobby because it's just so full on. It's so committed. It pays. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a support revenue. It's not the main revenue. But um, it's so much more than a hobby, and I'm sure you find that yourself in your own life, Matt. So. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so, so, just to make sure I know, like, so you're not doing photography full time in terms of all of your ways of supporting yourself? No, um, no, it's a secondary income from from that point of view. And when it comes to gallery, uh, because of that, it means that all I really have to cover is my rent, um, and and arguably. I mean, I hate to be so commercial, but arguably I could see that as a as a marketing expense. But you know, I'm, there's two guys in there who are full time. That this is what's feeding their family, and so so from that point of view, we need to make it work. It's a working gallery, a working studio, and it has to pay its way. So I fully get uh, the pressure of of running your life on a photography income. No doubt. Well, just because I'm so curious, what brewery did you work for? It's probably not one of your favourites, actually, because I see you with a, a nice little Oregon craft. So it was Molson Coors, which is uh, a big global brewery. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, and I started with their predecessor in the UK, which was Bass um, at the time, which is actually quite a well-known imported beer over here. And then they oh, were yeah. by Coors. And, and the kind of rest is history. I ran uh, at communications for Europe and then was asked to take over the the. the the role in the US, which, as I say, was just a fantastic platform for the family to move and start a new life. So. Hey, man, whatever gets you to Colorado, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> gonna knock it. <laughs> yeah, so you know, back back to the uh, back to the photography side of things. One of the things that I'm most interested in learning more about your and your background, and I think this probably ties in to what we were discussing with the camera club stuff, but. You know, you've you've had a lot of success in multiple genres of photography, you know, uh, architecture, landscape, cityscapes, and now you're getting more and more into wildlife. Can you tell us about some of the accomplishments that you're you're most proud of in terms of those different genres? Yeah, sure. And I mean, it's funny, Matt. I don't think I ever set out to be accomplished in multiple genres. I think <laughs> I'm just like a child, and and I'm out with my camera. And and if it, if portraits are what happening, I'm going to shoot portraits. If if I'm on an urban adventure, I'm going to shoot skyscrapers. And it's just whatever is there as stimulus, hmm. I have to capture it. And clearly, there's interest beyond that, and you pursue them, and you go out and you seek them out. But I've just I've just I just love visual arts, and just being able to carry that through to a sort of photographic experience is, is really what's driven me. There's, I suppose there's an underlayer to that, which is if you are in a club and you are competitive. You won't win a competition without succeeding in multiple genres. You could be the best landscape photographer in the world, but you're still not going to win the club competition because you didn't nail it in the portrait <laughs> in the portrait uh, phase of the sort of year's um, uh, competition. But that aside, so what am I proud of? Um, I was just so ecstatic just getting into the final of the UK Landscape Photographer of the Year, and that's when I really felt like I'd kind of in a naive way, you thought you've made it, you know, you just, you, you've, you've lived a dream, you see all these people, and we're going to talk about who, who you know, some of my photo heroes later, but uh, suddenly you're alongside them in, in, a, in, a, in a coffee table book, and it just feels absolutely wonderful. So that, that has been very inspiring to me. 
Um, then I suppose making the switch to wildlife and, and having some recognition in, in that field quickly was very rewarding to me. Um, we'll talk about my cancer battle, but at the end of that year, I got the front cover of Colorado Outdoors Photography Edition, which had nothing to do with the illness whatsoever. It was purely based on wildlife photography. So that was a small local piece of recognition that just meant a lot because it was a brand new genre to me. Yeah. Um, but, but really, I think ultimately, when if someone's willing to put their hands in their pocket and, and buy a picture, that's an amazing feeling. And so, so when you're in a gallery and someone comes in, I, I love your work, you tell them the story and then they say, do you know what? I want to buy that picture. It's different from critical acclaim and, and there's something even more heartwarming about it because a person has said, I love your work and I want it on my wall. And and actually you can't beat that sort of recognition. It's just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, what that's what's great about that, at least, you know, having the physical print on the wall that they can already see, you don't have the problem that I have, which is, you know, mo- mo- all of my sales are just, it's, you know, online. So people don't actually see the physical product before they buy it. And of course you're nervous because they actually can't see it in real life until they actually buy it. And so I'm always worried about, you know, I, I mean, I, I have very high quality standards and have mm. processes and all that in terms of like ensuring that the print's going to turn out as best as I possibly can, but you still it's hard to kind of describe to people like it looks a little different on print than it does on the computer screen, you know, yeah. no matter what you do. <laughs> yeah. I do know that feeling. And um, I, depending on the size and format, if, I, if I'm up to about 22 inches, I'll print myself. And so I can actually see the quality and, and I, and I know that what I'm sending is what they asked for. Yeah. I'm now lucky enough in Colorado that I found a really, really good printer. So if I'm doing larger format and the, or gallery floats like on the wood, they take special care and, and they're actually they're actually looking through my eyes, if you like, at the print and saying, "No, this is what's intended," or or they'll feed back and say, "Actually, that was a little bit dark. Do you want to work on the file and send it back again?" Because you're absolutely right. What you see on screen with brightness and what you see in print, you know, might not be perfect, even if things are all calibrated. So. I think having a high quality printer that will work with you as an artist and say, this isn't up to your usual standard, Wilson. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's exactly the sort of feedback you need because the, the worst outcome is if the client says that's not up to your usual standard. <laughs> yeah. That's the only bad thing about some of those bigger labs like Bay Photo. Um, they just, you know, they produce decent stuff, but like they're not going to care if it, meets your personal expectation. So do you use Duraplac or do you use Reed? Uh, Duraplac mostly, yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense, cool. That's what a lot of, like, I know Jack Brower uses a lot of Duraplac, and I used to use Duraplac, but I like Reed, but neither neither here nor there. But you said plaques, and so I assumed it was Duraplac. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> I, I, mean, I wasn't meaning to do an advert either. <laughs> no, that's cool. I was just curious. I was just curious. <laughs> Cool. So you know, going back to my original question around the different genres, I'm curious, you know, having been so accomplished in all, all those different genres, how has your pursuit of those different genres benefited each of the your ability to produce good work in each of the different genres? Like I know you can learn a lot about wildlife photography through portraiture and vice versa and 
Um, I'm just curious kind of what you found to be um, of benefit in terms of um, cross-disciplinary pursuit. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great question. And, and I think at the really high level, I think there, there are just general standards of photograph taking that, that you, you apply. So, you know, good composition is, is as applicable in landscape as it is in wildlife. It's probably more practicable in landscape because you've time to consider your composition. Wildlife is a much more rapid fire responsive situation. Unless you've set up a scene and you're waiting for something to, to move into that particular scene, but that that's a lot of luck attached to that. What I found, Matt, and it does directly relate, is um, there's a genre which I didn't invent this phrase, wildscape, and 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 I and I find now that I'm deliberately looking for those opportunities, which are to take a landscape scenario with a wildlife image in it. And, and I'm finding some of my best images now are actually genuinely bringing together landscape and wildlife where, where the wildlife animal is the subject, but he or she might be a small proportion of that whole vast scene. Uh, there's a shot I took just February this year in, in Samwash Basin uh, where the wild mustangs are. And usually for me, that's a close-up experience. You're trying to get a horse and you know real high dynamic energy. And this, even though it was a 600 mil, this was a vast landscape image of a tiny horse stallion running across the ridge and you can just see 160,000 acres of sandwash snow um, sort of unfolding behind him. And, uh, and I get so much joy from that picture. You know, yeah. it, 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 it can only loosely be described as a wild horse image. It can only loosely be described as a landscape and it just brings the two of them together. In a right. way that and me a lot and of course the horse had so much uh, sense of scale. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like putting a person in the sand dunes, isn't it? You just say, whoa, that's massive. So. Yeah, I, um, I got so lucky. Actually, it was yesterday. I um, climbed three mountains here close to Durango. And as I was on top of the second mountain, looking out across the ridge to the next mountain, I was like, what is that? And there was a like a baby elk. Oh, wow. On the ridge, just catching the first rays of light of sunlight. Yeah. Um, at like 13,200 feet. I was like, what are you doing up here? But it was amazing. I got, and I have, luckily, I brought my telephoto with me and I was, yeah. you know, snapping away. So I'm it's excited those, to see if that turns out or not. <laughs> it's one of those moments. And, and, uh, I've had them myself, Matt, where you, you think, actually, the scene is here. I've just got to do a job <laughs> of recording this and not screw it up <laughs> because right. because it's perfect. And I just have to make sure that I capture that perfection in my camera. So. Right. There is a little bit higher stakes when it comes to moving subjects. Yes. No, completely, completely. I had a, a, a similar but lower altitude experience. Uh, uh, Ten days ago, I was shooting really lucky in Colorado. I actually found a field of wild poppies. Uh, which is an, an unusual thing. And it actually, yeah, it, is. it lets me reminisce a lot because that was an annual treat in, in England or Scotland to actually find a field of poppies and, and shoot that. But um, So I'm shooting this field of poppies and it's dusk and I just see this head bobbing through. It's basically a, a, um, a white-tailed deer just strolling through these poppies at dusk. Oh my gosh. Fantastic, so. uh, I bet that was magic. Yeah, yeah, and that's when you just think, whoa, the the the, the wildlife, not the photographer, just took this to a whole other level. So right, I mean, I'm sure it was a perfectly fine nature photo <laughs> <laughs> that then just like got elevated uh, yeah. because of the presence of wildlife. Absolutely, that's cool, man. Well, 
So quick, one last question about that. So if you had to pick only one genre to photograph for the rest of your life, which one would it be and why? Oh man, that's tough. Um, so I, I, I don't know if I'll surprise you here, but I'm going to choose portrait. Okay. And, and so I, I have built my photo career on landscape and wildlife. And, and I remember um, being on the receiving end of a talk in, in UK, and it was uh, from Will Chung, who was the editor of, I think it was Digital Photographer in the UK. And at the end of the talk, he's kind of looked out in the room and he's like, oh, you landscape photographers and wildlife and sports photographers, you're all brilliant. He says, but you don't use your kit enough to, to capture your families. And, and it just really, really stuck with me. And, and I think, I mean, I was already committed to capturing my family, but I've, I think since that day, I've made it an absolute mission. And, and so the photos that I'm most proud of on the wall are actually portraits of my family. And uh, they're not the ones that are necessarily going on social media and, you know, getting all the likes, but they're the ones that kind of work for me. So, so, so no, if you, you've forced me to choose one genre, it's going to be portraiture and it's going to be my family because that's the stuff that you're going to lie on your deathbed and look at. <laughs> well, that's a good point. And you just reminded me how much fun that is. Um, you know, when my son was younger, he's 13 now, but, mm-hmm. you know, when he was like seven, eight, nine, he was all about it. You know, I could take a picture of him anytime, anywhere, and now it's like pulling teeth. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that, so... But no, I appreciate that. That that makes a lot of sense. It's so it surprised me, but it makes sense. Good. <laughs> awesome. So let's dig a little bit deeper into the the transition into wildlife. So I know that you've recently been battling um, a stage four colon cancer diagnosis. Uh, what role has wildlife photography played in your recovery process? Yeah, so I'm going to take you back a few years. So I was diagnosed in. Um, 2016 with stage four colon cancer which had metastasized to my liver by then um and um stage four my age etc i was given a sort of 10 to 14 percent chance of living for five years so you can do the maths this is 2021 so so we're on five years uh, which feels pretty good um i went into this not really knowing of course what the outcome would be um started a, a course of very aggressive uh, chemotherapy. The fact that I was young and despite the illness relatively fit meant I could actually tolerate uh, quite quite aggressive chemo. So, so I think that has probably played a major part in being able to recover. I had surgery to my colon at the start of that process. So I think they, they took about 10 centimeters out of that. Went on this course of treatment. And of course, within uh, that, that sort of first meeting, the the oncologist said to me uh, there's a drug that we're going to be using on you it's an immunotherapy drug it's called panitumumab and i need to warn you you need to avoid sunshine at all costs and i'm thinking oh <laughs> like dude i'm a landscape photographer are you kidding me <laughs> i'm a landscape photographer who's just moved to colorado <laughs> yeah we have 300 plus days of sun pal yeah, do you not exactly know that? that exactly that man so you got 300 days of sunshine I've just moved from a country that had 30 days of sunshine a year. <laughs> um, and, and I've got to be honest, photography wasn't the first thing in my mind at that point. But, you know, when you start to process what's going on and you need, and it's our therapy. I mean, it's just it's what just keeps you going. And God, I was about to go through the toughest of times without my therapy. 
Yeah. And I thought, I have to find a way through this. And that's when it occurred to me, we've got this abundance of just beautiful state parks and national parks on our doorstep full of wildlife. What's more, you can drive through them. So I, so I would suddenly find myself driving through you know, a state park close to my house and able to shoot wildlife from the protective shade of my car. So suddenly I got my therapy back. I got my, you know, I was able to sort of crack on with uh, photography and it just gave me a whole new genre in photography. So uh, again, at the worst time of my life, I was having this, these creative urges, you know, it's like, where the hell did that come from? And um, it was just a fantastic way of working alongside a, a very, very difficult battle, as I say. So, Yeah, that's, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're fighting it off and it's always awesome to hear how people are able to leverage photography to overcome, you know, these horrible things that are happening in our lives. And I'm curious, have you put much thought into the impact that the, the actual photography that you're engaged in has had on your ability to recover? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I will never compare what I can add to the mix to the medical brilliance of the people who, who basically saved my life. But I do believe that attitude and mindset is a big part of recovery, even if it's just a big part of 1%. It's important. And when you're talking about a 10 to 14% chance of recovery, believe me, 1% matters. So if, if, if I believe that my attitude, my willingness to get up, get out there, stay, stay rel- as fit as I could uh, through a really, really tough time made even a fraction of a fraction of a difference, Believe me, the stakes were so high, it was worth it. And, and regardless, it just gave me the, the attitude of, of getting through this. This is a bump in the road. We're going to get through it. Um, and, and I'm lucky because that's how, so far, it has turned out to be. Uh, and very quickly, Matt, I started to see good signs. So after three months, there was a positive scan. You know, you, you've got reduction. Three months later, another reduction. So I, I never had a setback after the worst setback in my life yeah so so that was the worst thing and, and then it got progressively better um, from there so I had that extra impetus of I started with the right mindset and then the recovery process was actually helping fuel that mindset of do you know what we can do this um, so were you were you mindful of that in the impact of that mindset at the time or is it something that you've had to just grown to appreciate in hindsight Little, a little bit of both, um, I think. And I took a lot of inspiration from my wife and people around me as well. And, um, I mean, th- these are the darkest of times, Matt, you know, when, when there's just a lot of stuff going on in your mind and, and you're a little bit paralyzed. And, you know, it's like, what we're going to do, how we're going to move forward. And um, I knew it was stage four. I knew there was a very low chance of recovery. I knew at that point that my liver was inoperable. Um, that that situation changed, but at the time it was my wife that had the courage to say to the oncologist, "What's the treatment plan?" She didn't say, "How's this going to work out?" Just watch the treatment plan, and it was just that very practical, positive approach. And when he said, "Yeah, we've got a treatment plan," she asked the question I was too scared to ask. If that makes sense. And as soon as we got the affirmation, do you know what? There is a treatment plan. There's a possibility that this could go well. That was the spark. Um, and and that, that really sort of set me off in the right path of believing it. And as I say, that belief grew uh, as things got better. So in case it's not clear, I'm now in remission and, and have been for four years. Um, so that treatment 
uh, as aggressive as it was, did its job. And, and I couldn't believe it after one year when they said uh, there is no evidence of disease. Um, the phrase here is NED. And what you might not know is in Scotland, NED means non-educated delinquent. <laughs> so when I published on Facebook that I was finally uh, a Ned, everyone in Scotland obviously thought that was hilarious. So I made a conscious decision. I, I don't know if it was bravery or fear, but I didn't publish the news of my cancer until it was until I was in remission. So obviously friends, family knew, work knew. But in terms of social media, I kept very, very quiet and basically announced the illness and the recovery on the same day. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, you've already mentioned, you know, mindset. I'm curious, you know, for listeners who are also photographers who might be struggling with something else in their life, whether it be a divorce or mental illness or maybe their own medical um, challenge, what, um, what insights or advice would you have for them in terms of how to move forward um, and how to leverage the photography side of things as part of their process for getting to a better place i think that's a, a great question and, and I, I was i would have been lost without photography and, and it, it's such a such a positive stimulating creative part of my life and I, I don't want to belittle the other parts of my life at all clearly family is the, the biggest most important part of it and and there's no way i'd have recovered without them you know so so just to take that as a given but when you look at your sort of personal deep sort of soul motivating motivating things that you do then photography was that for me and having that creative outlet being able to create during a destructive process was just fulfilling for me and 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 if, if we can turn destruction in our lives or damage in our lives into something that produces something that's creative and beautiful my god that's a victory absolutely yeah, yeah so so um, that's a really insightful question, Matt, and I, I almost feel like I wasn't ready with an answer. But I, th I think that's that that is the key for me: is being able to turn something that that's negative and damaging and destructive into something positive and and hopefully inspirational for others. Um, I think you know, and I'm not here to sell a book, but I mean, I, I put it through a, a channel of, of producing a book, which is all about that shooting through the window. And that raised um, uh, awareness and, and funds. And actually, as it turns out, awareness was more important than funds. No matter if I raised $5 million, it's still a drop in the ocean. And, and I didn't, by the way. But the most important thing is, is, is the awareness. And when I published that book and told my story, and there's not one negative comment in that whole book, even though it's the most, again, the most destructive <laughs> disease you can think of it was all about the positivity of of optimism and recovery and using your photography to help with that therapy and when i knew the book was working is when people would come up to me afterwards and say do you know what saw your book loved that picture of a hummingbird very very nice and you, you have a couple of questions then the third or fourth question how, how did you know something was wrong and that's when you realized that actually it wasn't about the wildlife it wasn't about the fundraising it was a stepping stone into a cancer conversation that people are too scared to have usually. Uh, I love that. Uh, one one thing that else that came to mind as you were just talking about that is, I'm curious, how have you seen your photography shift since the cancer diagnosis? Like, have you seen it go in different directions that have been unexpected, or have you 
noticed um, it being more connective to some of your emotional states? Like, what are some of the things you've you've seen in terms of the the output of your images? There's there's definitely a, a purpose there. So so I I um I talk about you know turning my terminal disease into a terminal cause for awareness and and, and actually I really feel that so if I can use my photography as a platform to raise awareness about a disease that's way way bigger than, than anything I can tackle alone uh, then then I, I think that feels like success in itself but it has definitely challenged me to think differently about my photography and we talked about portraiture earlier I mean there are things that I've channeled through portraiture that I, that I wasn't able to bring to life for landscape or wildlife. So um, there's a self-portrait that I did. Um, and I need to qualify this. I've never been, I've never really angry about my disease. Obviously, I, w- I was full of regret and sadness and, you know, <laughs> wanted to get better. But I, w- I didn't feel, I wasn't angry at the world for giving it to me. And then I was at a, a colorectal cancer alliance conference. And I met a 17-year-old boy with stage four colorectal cancer with METs to his liver. <clears throat> and exact same condition as me. And he was the exact same age as my son. He even looked like my son, same sort of build, really good athlete, had just been struck down inexplicably um, by this disease. And I went home and I was so wound up and fired up that I was actually angry. I did a, a, a very, I think, quite, quite powerful statement around... Um, uh, cancer and it was called survivor and it's basically just me with my arms crossed in defiance and my scar uh, where my liver uh, was cut in half um was was on show etc and it's this real kind of fuck off cancer moment um that i hadn't really felt while while i had cancer uh, and that boy has since died and so that that is what just spurs you on that you just if you can use photography to make a difference in that world um, and people have written to me since. There's a lady, stage four cancer, has that picture on her fridge. And you talk about what inspires you. That inspires me way more than any award I've won because that's helping her battle through her illness. And it just, it makes it, I get wound up, happy, sad, emotional, defiant, all at the same time when I hear stories like that. But if my photography can help someone with their mindset the way it helped me, then my God, another victory. You know, it's interesting as you were talking, I was kind of remind, this is kind of a tangent a little bit, but it'll come back. It'll, it'll make sense in a second. Um, mm. But I was reminded I, I, um, I studied some like psychological anthropology when I was in college. It was mm-hmm. one of those elective upper level classes I took for my degree. But um, one of the main takeaways from that class was like, there's very, profound differences in how people in the East, like in Asia um, or other parts of the world, um, how they experience and process emotions versus um, us here in the West and also psychological disorders. So like a key example would be like depression. You know, a lot of people in the United States with depression, we like, or anger, like we like bottle it up and then it it comes out. So I'm curious, like, do you feel like the, like your ability to process these emotions and these feelings that you were having about what you were going through, through the visual arts, is that something uh, like, what would you have been able to do with, if you didn't have that outlet? Like, 
you know, to just stay pent up inside of you? Like, how would you have expressed any of that stuff? Or maybe a better way of asking the question is, um, what role did photography play in your ability to express those emotions? I think it played a, a huge role. Uh, and but I think the sort of flip of the question is, what would you have done without photography? And I think I would have had to find a way. I would have painted or I would have written or, or I would have, I don't know, I've never written a poem in my life, but maybe that would have been the moment. And, and I, I think I am at heart a creative soul and, and I needed that creativity to come to life. So if I hadn't ever picked up a camera in my life, it would have been a paintbrush or a pen. Um, and, and I would have found something. Otherwise, you're right. You you would just drive yourself crazy with fear and worry. And I don't mean it's a distraction that you're forgetting about it. I mean, I processed a lot of my emotions and beliefs and fears while I was shooting. It, it wasn't that I blocked it out while I was shooting. It was actually happening in my mind while I was shooting. And I think that's where wildlife is particularly interesting because you can sit for hours doing absolutely nothing. People say, why are you torturing yourself sitting in a corner? You know, just thinking about this. But it was actually helping me process the thoughts. And that's actually when the pen did come out. That's when I did start jotting down the notes that became the book. But again, it was it was positive thoughts. How, how are we getting through this? How are we building um, the sort of values of perseverance and optimism, that kind of thing that's going to work through this? So, so that's where that came from. And I think these are values from within so it, it can be expressed through a camera it can be expressed through a pen it can be expressed through a paintbrush it can be expressed through re relationships the camera in that sense is just a tool when you were in that process and in that mindset of image making uh did like let's use the word perseverance you know the word you just used was it fairly intuitive for you to be able to express that idea through the image when you were in the field or was it something that came to you after the fact it's, it's a little bit of both and and i think again there's there's those two levels matt so <clears throat> one is the um the first level of i'm just capturing a great wildlife image or i'm capturing a great uh, landscape image hope hopefully and, and then I think through that, the stories, a lot of them came afterwards. Um, so I'll give you an example. I, I took a, a portrait of a burrowing owl. And, and I had watched this owl over the course of two weeks, sort of set up his nest with his wife. And you know that she's down the hole and it, hopefully there's eggs and babies coming. And uh, as a photographer, you're, you're thinking on that level of, wow, there's a great sort of wildlife opportunity unfolding. And then there was a hawk appeared. And this hawk is kind of circling the, the, the terrain where the burrowing owl has sort of set up its nest. And I, I went back the next night and the owl wasn't there. And, and if I went through all the emotions of denial. <laughs> it's like, no, maybe maybe he's just hiding down the hole for the, the hawk to pass. I went past the second night and he's gone. And so by the third night, I accepted that my little friend had, had departed. So, so what started as a photographic pursuit became... A story for me about the circle of life, and and so so I think these things are organic and they grow. That was simply a portrait of an owl, but now I look at that portrait and I see the circle of life and the story and the 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 the, um, the way I kidded myself on that I'd actually befriended the owl, <laughs> that he looked forward to my visits um, 
and then the hawk took it away and it just it just acquired a whole new uh, level of storytelling beyond the, the 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 pure sort of picture quality and i think that's the opportunity you have with a book or a gallery is to actually add that context and color alongside the picture and um, so i loved sharing the stories of the photos in the book i love it when people come into the gallery and say what what is the story about that shot where did you get it from and it just adds so much i mean they say a picture tells a, you know a thousand words Often, honestly, the words can really add to the picture as well. I, yeah, I was, I was just going to say the exact same thing because I can't even remember, but I got into some argument about that with somebody online. I think it was, oh, I remember now, it was on Nightscaper Facebook group and we were, someone was complaining that we had a, a requirement that you had to add a story to the image. And it's a, it was, it's not like a hard requirement, it's like a suggestion. And someone was complaining that like, well, the picture tells a thousand words. Why do you need a story? And it's like, for all the reasons that you just described is why. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, and, and what an amazing opportunity we have as photographers. If there is a story that's to be told with our images, um, I think it can add so much more to, to the photograph. You know, it's, it just makes it so much more powerful for the viewer um, and like you said, what an amazing experience it is for you to be able to have that interaction with somebody who's actually there looking at your work. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you deserve to be in a gallery, Matt. Get yourself in one. <laughs> yeah, I would love to do that someday. <laughs> there are none here, so. <laughs> uh, I, I see an opportunity emerging in front of you. <laughs> I love that. Cool, man. Well, so I think we, we already covered this, but I wanted to make sure there wasn't anything else you wanted to add um, because I'm pretty sure that this is in regards to your the colorectal um, thing you discussed. But you and I had t talked a little bit about this idea of photo advocacy, and it's something that I'm super passionate about. In fact, it's that's one of the things that I really would love to be able to do more of in terms of having my images help something that I believe in strongly. So in terms of quote-unquote photo advocacy, how would you describe what that is and how have you been engaging in it? Yeah, no, I, I, I really appreciate the question. Actually. I think for me, photo advocacy, I mean, I, I don't know if I coined the phrase or not. I, I hadn't heard it before. <laughs> um, and, and it was a way of bringing together two big, big interests in my life, you know, photography and the need to build awareness for causes. Um, and so, so it just became such an obvious platform for me. I have um, reach in terms of photography. So, so at a minimum, I can tell my social media audience, you know, a little bit about colorectal cancer and getting screened. And then it was like, hold on, we can go further. And suddenly the book became a platform to get on TV. And, and so the TV was interested in a photographer who had recovered from a cancer battle and published a book. But on that TV interview, I was able to talk about the importance of getting screening, the fact that legislation wasn't in place that meant young people would get screened, the importance if you see blood in your stool, for God's sake, get yourself um, uh, to the doctor immediately and, and have that checked out. So that, that's what I mean by having this platform to talk about a bigger, more important message. But I would not have had that platform without the photography. I, I, I couldn't just show up and say, you know, I've recovered from cancer. That's it. Can, can, you, can, you, can you do a show about me? But it, it was the photography that actually gave um, that, that 
opportunity through it. And now I, I look for opportunities beyond that. So I did actually start uh, work on a bill in Colorado to get the age of screening reduced from 50 to 45, because that's where, to, to put it bluntly, the growth is, is in this disease, because people above 50 have an automatic right to screening through the health plan. So actually the numbers of disease um, are coming down in that age group. It's still a serious disease, don't get me wrong. It's still America's number two cancer killer. But the people under 50 and now under 45 who were having symptoms but not being scanned, they were the ones that were suddenly being discovered at late stage, like myself, where it's far, far harder to treat and, of course, far more expensive. So no matter which way you look at this, there's merit in in screening younger. And actually that uh, legislative effort has now been superseded because the the U.S. uh, Preventive Services Task Force has off their back, recommended that screening be reduced to 45. So, so that, that was a, a victory uh, from, that, from that sense. Um, and, and even if I just contributed half a percent to that effort, you know, it, it, it felt like uh, progress and something that I wanted to give back and do. So, so yeah, if, if you've got talent and skill and you can use that to creatively benefit your community, do it. I mean, it might be as simple as um, I talked about shooting the kids, didn't I? So, my kids have both been very, very active in sports. Uh, my son uh, ran track for his uh, high school, and I would go and shoot not just him, but everybody. And at the end of the year, uh, awards night, I would give everybody a 13 by 19 black and white print of themselves in action. And it, didn't, it hardly cost me anything, and the delight on those kids' faces was just was so heartwarming. So that's not advocacy, but it is giving back to your community. So you just find your level. And find what you can do, and and if you've got if you've got that sort of creative capability, I think it's wonderful, and it just gives you a great feeling to share that with people. Nice, no, I love that. Cool. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about you know your how you found a, a passion for photographing uh, wild horses. Tell us a little bit about your love for that, and and how you got into doing it. I mean, besides the you know the, the cancer part, of course. Yeah, and well, fun enough that that was kind of unrelated, Matt. So okay, I, great. Nice. I I just love shooting energy, so energy and dynamism, and and we talked about genre before. I will always look for energy and dynamism in any genre, and and if I can, and horses, wild horses battling. I'd seen images of that, and it just you know the notions. Even living in Britain before I moved here, of the wild Mustang and the American West, it's just all so evocative. And then I, I read about um, a wild Mustang sanctuary just outside of Denver. It's about 17 miles east, I think. And I traveled out and I was captivated by these animals. But but they, they remember, these are rescued. So, so they're in a sanctuary situation. They're looked after. Um, they're, I guess they're semi-domestic. I mean, they're, they're fed and, and watered. So I was like, this is lovely, but where do you get the animals from? <laughs> you know, where are they rescued from? And they introduced me to an organization called the Sandwash Advocacy Team, which basically look after the welfare of the wild horses that are truly running wild in northwest Colorado in a, in a place called Sandwash Basin. It's about 280 miles from my house, but I was up there the next weekend and just absolutely blown away. First, the, 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 the vastness of the landscape. I think I mentioned earlier, it's 160,000 acres, which is 250 square miles. So... It is vast. Um, there's about 
anything, well, estimates vary, but let, let's say there's six or 700 horses there. I, I can't do the maths, but they can be very, very spread. And you can either find a horse in five minutes or you could spend a day um, kind of searching uh, for them. Uh, I got incredibly lucky on my very, very first trip there. And um, as I was leaving, actually, I saw this just absolutely stunning wild Pinto Mustang. So that's the sort of tricolor, black, uh, white and chestnut uh, horse, this mane. And he was fighting a, a rival stallion. I was like, whoa, screeched the car to a halt. Got out and shot just this amazing horse in action <clears throat> with his rival. And thought, fantastic. You know, last shoot of the, the trip, we, we've, we've nailed it. And I got into the car, was looking forward to processing. And just I just thought I was just publishing a good-looking horse. Turns out it was a, a wild Mustang called Picasso, which is the most famous wild Mustang in the world. And I probably if I'd known that, I might have bottled it. <laughs> I had no idea. And captured... Um, uh, photos pretty much at the end of that horse's prime he was already in his late 20s um he's now believed to have deceased so when i published that it went absolutely uh, ballistic <clears throat> on social media and people go wow that's picasso wow i've never seen a picture like that before and uh, so i i um was hooked basically from that point um on and went back visited with friends and i've, I've kind of got four f's in mind when i got there there's there's fights and and Seeing two wild stallions fight is just this. They've got so much adrenaline, and it's just absolutely fills you um, with, with excitement. But th these are rapid fire, so obviously you don't appreciate that in, in a still photo. But these things can be over in seconds. So we talked before about capturing the moment. You know, you, you've really got to be sharp to get those. So there's fights, foals. So if you go back, sort of springtime, April. You just have the delight of seeing newborn foals um, uh, uh, run around. Uh, faces, I always think if you can get a, a sort of um, portrait of a really sort of good-looking horse, and I, I love it when they're you know just so tousled. You know, they get wind knots in their mane, and and I and I get very upset when people uh, write on my posts um, that they would love to take a brush to that mane, and I'm going, no, just <laughs> this is as wild as it gets. Just leave this. Horse alone, <clears throat> and then the, the the fourth F for me is fast, and and that's where I think with this energy and dynamism coming, and there's nothing to beat horses on mass running, and and just if you can capture that moment, the energy and the drama of that, then it's just absolutely exhilarating. So, so I, I've been back, <clears throat> gosh, probably twelve or thirteen times since that point, and it's it's just such a fulfilling experience, and and you've got that much kind of diversity of opportunity as well, which is great. Yeah, and based on what I've seen um, on your posts on social media, I feel like those images are doing pr pretty well for you as well. Yeah, they're certainly um, <clears throat> popular. And I, I mean, there's some absolutely enormous Facebook communities around these horses. I mean, wild horses are an amazingly popular um, subject. And if you get known for doing decent shots of wild horses, then, then you, you are going to get followers. So I certainly saw a jump um, in, in, in my own followership uh, once I w was managed to sort of produce and deliver sort of a, a stream of decent wild, wild horse images. <clears throat> and then and, and then the, probably the best sellers as well. So I don't, I don't know if that's what you're alluding to, but uh, certainly front and centre in the gallery is a couple of wild horse action shots. So. Yeah. 
know, it's interesting. Um, my understanding about wild horses in the in the West here in the United States is that they're actually not native, right? They they were we were they were brought here by uh, by us back in I don't know, you know, the 1600s, 1700s, and and then of course what we're seeing is they're now they're just not domesticated, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting debate, and and uh, I I probably liken it to moose. So so um, you know moose in Colorado is not a native animal, right? And, and, yeah, neither and I, neither are um, mountain goats actually. Yeah, but and and I don't see the same challenge. Um, you know, if you enter a moose picture in a wildlife competition, no one would ever challenge it. <laughs> and 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 if you enter a wild horse image, someone's going to say, "Well, that's a feral animal." And I believe the law took care of that in 1971, I think it was, when they declared the Wild Horse and Bureau Act. And the phrase in that is, born wild is wild. So, so you might be right, if you want to go back to the 15th century or the 16th century <clears throat> in, in terms of uh, origin. But as, as far as I'm concerned, these horses are wild. They're protected as wild. They live as wild. And, and if you want to see wild animals in action, you, you go to Samwash Basin and you, you will not come away with even the slightest hint that these are not wild animals that are suffering 100 degree heat in the summer, minus 20 to 30 degree cold in the winter, foraging for foodstuff that is scarce and far between, suffering droughts in the winter, fighting for their existence uh, with each other. I mean, this is as wild as it gets. I love love the way you describe it. You got me sold. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, I did have one follow-up question, though, just based on, you know, things that I've seen published online and, and in some um, other podcasts that I follow around wilderness and whatnot. Mm. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on kind of the ongoing debate that's relating to wild horses in terms of, of them belonging on public lands and, and the impact that, that wild horses can have on public lands? Um, my understanding is that, you know, in some parts of the West, it's a significant impact in terms of, you know, damaging soil and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just curious if that's something you've put any thought or consideration into. Yeah, I have a little bit. I won't, I won't claim, um, Matt, to be a sort of deep policy advocate on this, but I just think through the experience of, of talking to people in this world, I have acquired some information and views and thoughts. And, and my view in all of these subjects related to policy is balance and 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 you need to have a balanced constructive dialogue around these issues and and i do see vehemence at either end of that spectrum and they're not listening to each other you know so, so how, how do you get to a point that you can actually have a conversation so so yes the land needs to be shared i i am excited matt to shoot sage grouse and and the sage-grouse shares the land with the mustangs. And if the mustangs eat all the land and the sage-grouse suffer, then, you know, nature suffers. So, so, so I get that. So I do support um, managing the population humanely. The, the advocacy group that I mentioned earlier, the Sandwash Advocacy Team, they actually dart the mayors with a, a, a substance called PZ, PZP or PZP, you would say, in, in the U.S., uh, which is basically a contraception, and, and it stops the mayor um, from from breeding. It doesn't affect their their desire to breed. It doesn't affect their um, their their uh, welfare or, or uh, well being from that point of view. But it does stop an explosion of new foals, which adds to the number and the pressure on the land. So I think if we can work through solutions like that, 
And I think um, it's the right solution. I think there's a reality, going back to the Wild Horse and Buro uh, Act, that wild horses can't be hunt, uh, hunted. So, so there's, there's no natural management of the population from, from that point of view. And uh, there aren't predators. So, so, so I accept that there's a lot of wild horses and we need to have a sensible conversation about how that's managed. I don't think the extreme solution of rounding up hundreds of wild horses through helicopter, taking them off for auction, and then the ones that aren't auctioned are slaughtered. I don't think that's a humane solution either. So I think just having conversations and, and coming out with a plan that, that means the landowners that are adjacent to the, these uh, public lands, the BLM, and the people that love wild horses all manage to have a say and contribute. I have written a couple of letters to uh, our Colorado senators, and I actually had responses just in the last 10 days from Senator Hickenlooper and Senator Bennett. And they, they both seem to advocate what I'm suggesting, which is we do have to have a discussion, but I want it to be balanced. And they're very clear that they want to see wild horse advocates represented and not excluded from, from the conversation. So, so I think that there are sensible people that can bring together sensible people. And I think as long as that can happen, that, then there should be a reasonable outcome. Man, I feel like that pretty much applies to any manner of political topic, right? <laughs> yeah, so I, I used to run policy for um, the organization I worked for in, in the UK, and, and I worked with a consultant. Um, and this is probably stating the obvious, Matt, but uh, the best advice he gave me was the person that is going to secure the right outcome is the first one to come up with a reasonable compromise. And, and if you can gather people around a reasonable compromise that addresses the beliefs, fears, desires, opportunities of all of the participants to a degree that's reasonable, you're going to move forward. Um, and so, so finding compromise, I think, has actually driven me um, since that point. And I, and I really understand the need for it. So having an extreme view in this situation might make a lot of noise, but it's not actually going to make progress. Mm -hmm. Well said. Awesome, man. Well, it's uh, I want to talk more about the gallery. So. Mm. Yeah, so can you tell us about the, the process of opening the new gallery, why you, why you decided you wanted to do it, and how is it going? Why, why did we open a gallery in the middle of COVID? Yeah, that <laughs> sounds like a really great plan there, Scott. So there are four people involved. There's myself, um, Evan Simon, who's a portrait photographer, Tony Eitzel, who uh, we call it Photo Noir. He does kind of interesting night stuff, a bit like sort of Hitchcockian type, type photography, and Kevin Schwalbe, who's more um, landscape and uh, floral photography. Now, I'm going to take you back a few years. I imagine you're familiar with John Fielder. Um, so I was in his gallery in Denver in 2016-17, actually through, through my illness. So that was another help, if you like, uh, on that journey. I was, in, I was in his gallery with a single photograph because I won a social media competition. Oh, fantastic. Like, there you go. So we have exhibited in the same place. Some, yeah, I don't remember what year it was, but it was before I knew anything about photography. <laughs> well, well done. <laughs> You've just proven that you can be in galleries. So, um, so that gallery sadly closed down in 2017, but I made a good friend there, Tony Eitzel. Um, we kept in touch. He, as a full-time photographer, needed another gallery. So he set up in another area of Denver called... Tennyson, he met Evan, so they exhibited together. And then I think you know, you know, the sort of property explosion in Denver, you know, when the leases come up, the, the prices go just 
absolutely th through the roof. So Evan and Tony were looking for a different place. And this opportunity opened up in East 6th Avenue in Denver. Uh, and it was big enough that it was it needed three or four people. So Tony gave me a phone and said, uh, listen, do you want to come in with us and join? So that was in February this year. We obviously had to think about, you know, it's COVID, it's a difficult time. So we, we kind of knew that we were at least six months from, from this thing ever taking off. But that gave us a chance to build. Uh, we, we got the portfolio right. It's deliberately not Scott's corner, Tony's corner, Evan's corner. It's quite an eclectic mix. So you walk in and you don't know who shot what, you know, unless, unless you read the label. Um, so I think that's a nice sort of collective approach. It's also, I think I mentioned there, it's, it's a working studio. So Evan does his portraiture in, in that studio. Oh, nice. Alongside of it's being a photographer, Tony is a, a, an absolute master framer. He is, uh, are you familiar with Deckled Edge? Yeah, a little bit. Yes, he, he's, just, he's just, I would say, a, a, an absolute expert on just creating fine art um, uh, uh, prints uh, with a deckled edge. So but he does, again, all that on site. So you actually come in, choose your picture, and then watch this guy frame it. It won't necessarily be the same night. <laughs> but, you know, you, you can watch that, watch that work happening. So it's just a fantastic atmosphere. We had some great launch coverage in some of the Denver media. So 303 Magazine, Westward. Um, gave, gave us a great shout <clears throat> um, so that's all working then of course we all use our own social media following to try and build the profile of the gallery as well so how's it going I think in terms of awareness really really well but because things are just genuinely still a little bit quiet and warming up through COVID we want more traffic um, and I think that will come and we're patient so we're having a, um, a, a almost like a second launch event on August the 6th because we never really had a chance to launch properly because of COVID. So East 6th Avenue uh, on 6th of August will be the place to be to come and celebrate fine art and uh, photography. So how are you guys modeling uh, your, your business in terms of, um, since it's a partnership, do you all have to put in time there in terms of manning the actual retail operation? Like what does that setup look like? It's a great question. And one of the reasons that I've hesitated in the past to re-enter the gallery scene was the need to have a curator. Um, and it was one of the big advantages of going to John Fielder's gallery is there was 11 or 12 artists in there. And so that created the, the funds or the revenue that meant you could hire a curator. So that's kind of put me off since then is I can't afford to you know create create the images, have them printed, and, and finance a curator and, and the hope that all that's recovered um, through through sales revenue. Or, or, or you physically live there full time. Exactly. And, and, I, and I simply can't do that. I mean, there was health reasons, work reasons and family reasons that, that that wouldn't be practical. The advantage of Tony being a framer whose frame shot is inside the gallery <laughs> means that he's pretty much there full time. So, um, and we went into that knowing that, that Kevin and myself, for example, we have careers alongside this. So we'll, we'll show up when we can, the odd afternoon here and there, definitely evenings. Every first Friday is a big event. So oh, we all right. to that. And then Kevin and I will be there on a Saturday. We were at the start open Saturday and Sunday, but we realized that it was basically killing our photography. You know, we, we couldn't shoot. There was just no time left at all. So uh, we're now closed on Sundays. <laughs> so we've got that, that time back, uh, which is helpful. So 
Short answer is Tony and Evan are in the gallery most of the time and manage that, and they very gratefully accept that Kevin and I show up when we can. So um, that that really, really works for me, and I'm very grateful for that. So. And then, I mean, I don't mean to get super personal in terms of the financial structure, but being that it's kind of a four-way uh, split in terms of the enterprise, I'm just curious, you know, in terms of, you know, most people thinking about doing something similar, you're automatically thinking about your costs for, you know, printing the work that gets displayed um, and then like how you price it and how much of the cut goes in to the gallery. So like what's the loose kind of structure for that? The setup part is, is a big point, Matt. Um, I was lucky that I had already an inventory from my time with John Fielder and I was in another gallery uh, run by Robert Anderson in Denver. So through those two experiences, I, I had a house full of art that I was able to, to basically start ready uh, within the gallery. That helps a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it literally saves thousands. I mean, that's probably ten or $15,000 worth of, of work straight away um, in terms just production costs, not even sales um, uh, price. So having that advantage to start make, makes a huge difference. Otherwise, you, you're you're starting with bin prints and doing the the, the the odd float and you know the odd framing exercise and and needing the money to come in to then fund the next piece and that kind of thing. So so it, it can be a slow build, um, but I mean the gallery is full, so so we've all got images there. Uh, pricing, I mean you don't want to be too out of sync with each other, so so we've got sort of rough rules of thumb um, and. Uh, so loose prints are obviously sort of bargains, um, but but I always think it's a false economy sometimes because you buy a loose print, you've still got to get it framed. <laughs> All right, that's what I always tell my customers. It's like, yeah, you yeah. can buy that, but you're going to probably end up spending more. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, Tony is great value at very high quality, so he'll do a really nice framing job. If you're into something that's more contemporary and you don't want to go to the expense of framing, then floats are a great solution as well, which is a sort of frameless print on wood so so i think the, the beauty of it is there's basically a price um level for every customer and we we didn't want to be so elite and, and out of touch that you know the, it was just about critical acclaim and very very expensive images we want real people to come in and buy real images and back to that reward of people putting their hands in their pocket you, you've got to make it accessible for people so you could come into our place and spend fifty dollars and go home with an image or you can go home and spend two or three thousand dollars and go home with, you know, an absolutely amazing work of art that's above your fireplace. So, so I'd like to think, you know, we we, we cover all needs and desires there. So. I think that's that's a really great approach. I'm glad to hear someone else think that way because uh, when I a couple of years back I kind of redesigned my entire print model and I was going back and forth in my mind about limited editions and how to price things. And essentially what I came back to was what you were just describing is I want it to be accessible for pretty much anyone without feeling bad about it, you know, and also not making it to where regular working people can't buy artwork, you yeah. know? Yeah. Once you start going down the limited edition route and you've got, you know, the only thing you sell is a thousand dollars or more, that becomes really challenging for, you know, 80% of your possible customer base <laughs> yeah and, and and you miss out in volume as well so if there's one thing i learned in the beer business volume drives revenue <laughs> right right well you, 
I mean, both models are fine. For me, it was more of a, uh, I don't know, like a moral dilemma. You know, I, I want, yep, I hear you. I, hear I you. want people that don't make hundreds and thousands of dollars a year to be able to buy art. Yeah, but no, I also I get you. And, and I, I would definitely resist the, the kind of elitist approach if, if that's what you're, I, I think we're in tune there. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, this has been awesome. You know, my last question, of course, is uh, who would you recommend for the podcast? Well, I've had to think about who kind of really inspires me, Matt. And um, there's a guy I follow on Instagram. And I don't know if this goes back to kind of untapped desires on my part, but it's actually portraits. And he doesn't do landscape uh, or wildlife. And a guy called Lee Jeffries, and he just does the most dramatic, um, soul-searching portraits of um, often homeless people. and and. Real, real kind of deep into your soul, the eyes bringing them to life. There'll be a sense of gnarl and suffering, and uh, it's just it's just the most dramatic and beautiful uh, way of processing images. So I'd certainly encourage people, uh, even if you if you if you're a wildlife and landscape dedicate, you know, still have a look at this guy's work. So if you can get him on, I think he'd, he'd be a, a fantastic subject. Um, and, and, and I have found myself inspired by what he does, even in some of my other work. So sometimes I'll take an approach to wildlife that is way off the sort of wildlife spectrum, you know, black and white, heavily processed, really sort of going for a stark drama. And, and some of that inspiration, I'm sure, has come from watching this guy's work. So someone else who really inspires me, and, and it's as an artist, but also as a person, is Mark Littlejohn. Um, he, he, he won the Landscape Photographer of the Year, the year that I first made the final. Um, so I was already kind of looking up to him as this kind of um, uh, uh, idol for, from a, a landscape photography point of view. And then I met him, and it was just this completely wonderful, down-to-earth, sarcastic Scottish humour. Um, um, we got on really, really well at the opening night uh, of the Landscape Photographer of the Year in London one year, kept in touch through social media, etc., He's now moved, um, I think he's retired and moved uh, back to Scotland and he just shoots his dogs and shoots wildlife when he feels like it and just he writes some wonderful prose to support um, his, his, his thoughts and views and opinions and sometimes he's really outspoken and, and I love reading that kind of stuff. But again, his attitude to landscape photography, I think it's what earned him quite rightly the title of Landscape Photographer of the Year was... He didn't. He didn't just do it the way you're supposed to. You know, he would take a landscape approach that was. I'm not shooting that whole mountain. I'm shooting a section of that mountain, and I, and I'm shooting a section of that mountain with a little trickle of water coming down, and it was just like a scar on the face of a mountain, and that ended up winning the whole landscape throughout the year, and and there was an outcry. Oh, of because, course, because it was polarizing, and that's what I loved about it: the fact that some people said, "Oh my God, that's absolutely brilliant." And some people said, that's not landscape photography. And, and I just loved the fact that he'd, he'd, his photo had the power to create that sort of debate. And there was no one could no one could possibly say it was a bad photo. They might say it didn't fit the genre. But I love the notion of genre-challenging photography. And then closer to home, um, 
There's a woman in Colorado called Dawn Wilson. I think she's president now of the North American Nature Photographer Association. But I mean, I know her personally rather rather than through that organization. Uh, she's a great sort of combiner of landscape and um, uh, wildlife as well. So I think she she would be a really interesting person to have on your show. Um, and, and as I say, I've met her a few times. We actually went on a trip to Samwash Basin together and um, uh, spent quite a lot of time talking in the car. So I, I know she can certainly hold a conversation with you, Matt, from that, my point of view. So that's great. So yeah. That three, three interesting people, certainly people that have inspired me to an extent. Yeah, we've actually exchanged a few emails about the podcast. So hopefully we can we can get her on here soon. Super. That would be awesome. Well, awesome, Scott. Uh, really appreciate your time and had a wonderful conversation and just. You know, your your story, I, I feel like, is so inspiring. And I hopefully, hopefully it'll inspire people that are listening in their own journeys in life. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I know Colorado is a, an expansive state, but I, I assume when you, when you get to Denver, please look me up and we can have a coffee in the gallery or one of your nice craft beers. <laughs> I will definitely hit you up on that offer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks again to Scott for the great chat on the podcast and for sharing your inspiring story. I am a huge fan of your work and I'm absolutely in love with your Mustang images, so keep up the awesome work. If anyone is in the Denver area, be sure to look up Scott's gallery, which is called Gallery 6. It is located at 2434 East 6th Avenue. Also, be sure to check out Scott's book, Through the Window. It is available through a link in the show notes. All proceeds from his book go to support colorectal colorectal cancer research and awareness. Lastly, I wanted to personally thank all of the amazing people that are supporting the podcast over on Patreon at patreon.com slash fstop and listen. I'm especially thankful for our podcast producers who contribute over $20 a month which ensures that we can continue to provide thoughtful discussions week in and week out. I believe that a high tide raises all boats, so when you can, reach out and support these individuals and what they are doing in the photography community. You can find a link to each of their websites by clicking on the podcast link on my website at mattpainphotography.com. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.